Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Welcome, Regenerators. This is the 10th installment in my coverage of Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation by Paul Hawken. And today we're going to step right into it as we talk about industry. We'll revisit Big Food, which we covered in our recent interview with Tom Newmark, founder of The Carbon Underground, and also in Part 8 when we covered Big Food, and Part 6 when we covered the subject of people. We'll also dig into the industries of healthcare, war, fashion, plastics, and poverty. Some of these topics are rather tightly knit together, so there will be some overlap. If you're new to this series, I encourage you to start from the beginning. The easiest way to do this is to visit my website, caremorebebetter.com, and click on the most recent episode. You'll see entire show notes, and if you click on the category of regeneration listed next to the episode, you'll be directed to a page that lists out the entire series. Start from the bottom and work your way up. When you visit caremorebebetter.com, you can review transcripts, YouTube videos of my interviews with key guests, including Paul Hawken, Tom Newmark, David Johnson, and Anka Novakovich. Each of these guests is well-informed on the subject of climate activism, sustainable business, and regeneration. Each offers more depth to the stories that we tell. And in my humble opinion, these leaders are among the many we need to learn from and listen to. While you're on my site, you can even leave me a voicemail and share your thoughts by clicking the microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner, or send me an email note with the contact page. And remember, feel free to leave any questions you might have for Paul Hawken directly, because at the end of this work, I'll be sending him a list of community questions, and he'll respond with kind of like a blog. That's what I'm thinking at any rate. If you're enjoying this series and podcast, I would love your support. As a listener-supported show, every contribution helps us keep chugging right along. You can become a Patreon supporter for as little as $2 a month, buy sustainable merch, or even make a one-time donation securely right on caremorebebetter.com. All right, industry. I'm sure you can tell that this episode has the potential to get really bleak with all the problems facing us from a variety of industries. We know that cheap products don't come without a cost on the environment, and the existing business model of most companies, that of capitalism and an extractive economy, doesn't incentivize a more mindful industry. Industry accounts for 30% of global energy consumption, 95% of which comes from non-renewable sources, fossil fuels. For more on that, you can go back to last week's episode on energy. But as with this entire series, Paul remains hopeful and encourages the same sentiment in all of us. That being said, we must acknowledge the simple fact that industry is extractive, and as such, it's degenerative. It's the exact opposite of what we are looking to achieve here. And of course, we're speaking in generalities. Quote, every industry is a system and every industrial system is extractive, whether it be for energy, food, agriculture, pharma, transport, clothing, or healthcare. Extraction takes resources from the living world, which causes harm. The result is less life. 
extraction is thus degenerative, end quote. And that is from page 215. While it may take time to shift from this extractive way of doing things, the writing is on the wall. Big companies have announced that they're committed to becoming regenerative businesses. Used clothing is becoming more mainstream, championed by companies like Patagonia and their worn wear collection, sold in store right next to their new items, not to mention their ongoing commitment to repair damaged goods. The big question Paul asks us to think about is simply this. How do we come together, get it done, and make right the damage we have collectively done to communities around the globe and to our home planet? How can we reverse global warming? As we think about this, let's talk about food. We eat a few meals a day, at least most of us. And the food industry is the largest industry in the world as a result. We must all eat, after all. But much of the big food that we produce is only food in name. It's food in the same way that Cheese Whiz is cheese. It's perhaps better referred to as an edible product. Edible doesn't mean nutritious. It just means it won't kill you. (laughs) Food shouldn't cause metabolic disease, but highly processed edible products certainly do. Chips, soda pop, fast food, bars, just to name a few. And these types of big food make big money. Their margins are better than raw foods. They are packaged products more than real food. Quote, while farmers large and small struggle to break even on a year-to-year basis, the top 10 food companies never had a bad year. In 2019, their revenue exceeded $500 billion. The bulk of big food sales come from ultra-processed foods, or in Michael Pollan's words, quote, food-like substances, end quote. As we might have guessed, I prefer to think of them as simply edible products. And let's not forget, nearly 60% of the calories consumed in the U.S. come from ultra-processed sources. Trans fats, preservatives, artificial colors, artificial flavors, not to mention the glyphosate and other damaging pollutants that come along for the ride, including plastics. Paul introduces us in this chapter to a simple concept, something that won't surprise you nutritional hunger. What this simply means is hunger driven by the lack of adequate nutrition. This is a driver of overconsumption and contributes to obesity. When you don't eat nutrient-dense foods, guess what? You're still hungry. Your brain keeps sending that signal that you need more food. So what is the solution? Limit the production of food-like substances or simply those edible products. Yeah, you can eat it, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. In his closing paragraph in this chapter, Paul states, the number one solution to human health and regenerative agriculture is to stop purchasing ultra-processed food. I'm fairly certain you can imagine how that simple action by all of us could create a really big change. Let's go on to talk about the healthcare industry. Not surprisingly, the direct connection between big food and big pharma can be seen in our waistlines and in our declining health. For too long, allopathic systems have focused on treating the symptom and not the cause. So by shifting our perspective to create more healthy solutions, big pharma suffers. While we address our economic systems, we'll also need to address how our healthcare system operates. Here are a few startling statistics. The worldwide adult obesity rate has increased sixfold since 1975. 
73.6% of adults over the age of 20 are overweight or obese in the United States, leading the rest of the world, which sits at 42.5%. That's more than 30 points in difference. America, guess what? We're fat. In 1980, diabetics numbered 108 million globally, and in 2019, that number had climbed to 463 million. At the same time, with rising temperatures around the globe and an aging boomer population now in their 70s, the incidence of deaths due to heat exposure are also climbing. Areas that never needed an air conditioner are facing heat waves of calamitous proportions. Just a few months back, there was that reality in northern Oregon, where ice and water stations were put up to support local communities that weren't accustomed to such intense heat. Homes with poor insulation and no air conditioning, and especially mobile homes, became like ovens, baking their residents inside. Quote, the interlinking effects of rising temperatures, environmental degradation, poverty, displacement, disease, and extreme weather require a comprehensive medical response rather than a symptomatic one. Human health is an outcome of healthy food and diet, which is dependent on healthy soil, which is an outcome of healthy agriculture. Highly processed foods are low in nutrients and high in unhealthy fats, salt, and sugar. Diet constitutes the direct cause of obesity, diabetes, and virtually all metabolic and cardiovascular disease. It is said that the United States cannot afford a public health care system, but it seems the United States can afford a public sick system, also known as big food, end quote. By now, you should know there would be a silver lining. For one, we have regenerative agriculture and agroforestry on the rise, and an entirely new field of medicine is emerging, one that takes us one step beyond the alternative medicine of yesterday, and that is regenerative medicine. At its core is a focus on the human microbiome. Since we have more foreign cells in our bodies than our own, restoring our gut flora is one major step towards solving human health challenges, even for those that have had terrible diets for a long, long time. Increasing consumption of fresh, healthy foods while supplementing with probiotics, omega-3s, phytonutrients, and multivitamins and minerals can work to be a part of that solution that we need. More doctors and medical professionals are starting to understand the incredible power of a few supplementary tools to restore our cellular health. Simply put, probiotic regenerative medicine makes the microbiome more diverse and responsive, exactly the way that regenerative agriculture restores our soils. In last week's episode, I shared a confession that I had just learned that, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase was the largest funder of big oil out there, and that has spurred my decision to switch banks. So it feels appropriate to dig a little bit deeper into that this week as we talk about the banking industry. Quote, demands that banks stop financing fossil fuels are having an effect. In 2017, ING Group forbade transactions linked to any aspect of the tar sands. BNP Paribas announced that it would not finance tar sands or shale oil. These banks were joined by Société Générale, HSBC, Royal Bank of Scotland, 
UBS, Norgas Bank with its One Trillion Wealth Fund, and others. End quote. It's really nice to see that big banks and big funds are taking notice, but they're also doing so somewhat selfishly. It makes good business sense. Returns on oil are way down, and returns on renewable energy are way up. They see the writing on the walls, and they're investing in the future. And banks will need to do more than just focus on the energy sector if we're to reach 2030 goals. Quote, if banks do not support investments that lead to net zero carbon emissions, including regenerative agriculture, carbon positive buildings, afforestation, and proforestation, it won't happen. End quote. But even if traditional big banks don't come to our rescue here, innovative emerging banking systems birthed in fintech, financial technology, might. There are independent and green banks to choose from. The Global Alliance for Banking on Values is a people-focused international network of banks devoted to sustainable development. See, there's hope. And a fintech company that may change the system is called Good Money. They practice what they call positive banking. No minimum balance. No overdraft fees. No monthly fees. No ATM fees. Wouldn't that be lovely? Did you know that big banks in the U.S. charged $34 billion to their customers in 2017 for overdraft fees alone? This practice preys on the impoverished and contributes to a cycle of debt that is, in my opinion, criminal. And here I'm happy to point you to an earlier episode as well. I interviewed Josh Sanchez, CEO and co-founder of FloatMe back in March shortly after launching the show. We talked about shady payday loan practices and moving to floats. We also talked about the reality of overdrafts and the tax that they are on the poor. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. It is a deep dive into one particular aspect of fintech and will help you, I think, think about the larger issue of poverty that we'll dig into a little bit later. I will include this detail with show notes. So as I move my funds to another bank, I am in deep research mode and I'm taking suggestions. If you have a bank that you love, that you know is doing great things, tell me. I want my money to do good, even if it's just sitting in a bank account. I'll be sure to share my choice when I get there, and perhaps you can join me in ensuring your money is also doing good work. As we transition to talking about the industry of war, Paul quotes a speech titled Chance of Peace by former President Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1953. I'll read it in its entirety since it's so apropos. Quote, Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. The cost of the modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all. Not in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, 
It is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. End quote. As you can imagine, the costs of war have kept pace with the costs of building and infrastructure, and they have even gotten worse. Paul points out that with the resources spent on one B-2 bomber, we could pay for 75 middle schools, 72 solar power plants serving over 4 million people, 36 fully equipped hospitals, and 281,000 electric vehicle charging stations. A single F-35 Lightning fighter, that jet costs 22 million bushels of wheat. A Zumwalt destroyer has an equivalent cost of building new homes to house 58,000 people. As you can see, the costs have increased dramatically. And who benefits from this war industry? 164 countries have armed forces, and 32 ongoing conflicts are happening around the globe. What would happen if these resources were instead employed in support of communities and in support of the regeneration movement? It may sound far-fetched, but if you think about the fact that military is already deployed to help handle the aftermath of severe storms and climate impacts like wildfires, it actually moves into the frame of possibility. We've seen their work in Puerto Rico, Australia, and my home state of California in recent past. So as we think about how governments play a role in reversing global warming and regenerating Earth, let's think about the politics of it all. The political machine is in fact an industry. It creates campaigns. It advertises. As a whole, the political industry is known to downplay facts, push forward selfish agendas, and ultimately placate the populace they serve. This is demonstrated by the simple fact that while two-thirds of Americans are worried about our climate crisis, policies and laws lag behind. Policies that would help reverse global warming are painfully slow to be adopted. And part of the reason for this discord that we experience in the United States comes from the fact that we have a two-party system, a duopoly, in which it is very difficult for a third option to win. This actually encourages negative advertising, smear campaigns, and it ultimately stalls progress towards something greater. In this section, Paul shares thoughts on a ranked choice voiding system in primary elections to advance the top four to five candidates to the general election. Then, when the final election occurs, we would vote in the same way, ranking our choices, say, from the top three. The winner would still be the person with the highest percentage of support, but it would be calculated a little bit differently. The beauty of this system is that it would focus on gaining consensus more and polarizing less. It would allow for third-party candidates to become more mainstream. It would also ensure that the Nader effect that played out in our 2000 presidential election would not prevent a presidential candidate like Al Gore from becoming president. The will of the people would come first, which really is the way the whole system is supposed to work. Like most things, This type of change will have to come from local elections first. One of the problems we see in our electoral system is that even when people are very unhappy with their political body, they tend to re-elect the incumbent, 85 to 91% of the time, in fact. So perhaps there's yet another way to run elections. California residents may recall... (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, I didn't mean to make this punny, uh, but it is. They may recall a recall, a recall vote for Gavin Newsom, our governor, earlier this year. The first vote was whether or not to remove Newsom from office. The second vote was a choice for who would replace him if he were to lose his seat. This might be another method for allowing existing candidates who have held their legislative seat for a long time to be voted out when constituents are unhappy. Should the incumbent keep their job? Yes or no? If they should be replaced, who should replace them? This type of approach could really change things for the better. Moving on to clothes. The clothing industry is something I've covered in depth in this podcast through an interview with Caroline Preby of the Center for the Advancement of Garment Making. That was episode 14. We talked about her experience working with deliberative and thoughtful eco-minded designers like Eileen Fisher, who is also featured in this chapter of Regeneration. Caroline introduced the concept of heirloom fashion and proposed a thought that certain items might even be so well-made and durable that they could be passed down from one generation to the next. We explored fast fashion, and the many problems that surround it. But I'll cover some startling facts from Paul's book here and link to that episode with Caroline Preby and show notes for all of you. Here goes. Fashion is a $2.5 trillion industry growing from $500 billion in 1990. H&M had $4.3 billion worth of unsold clothes in 2018. Burberry burned 37 million of its products to prevent it from being discounted. In the U.S., 35.4 billion pounds of garments were landfilled in 2020. More than 60% of clothing is synthetic. It will not break down for hundreds of years. The new textiles economy invites us to change our habits and our thinking in four steps. First, Phase out toxic chemicals and synthetic microfibers, both of which are found in food and water. Second, change the way clothing is made and marketed to shift away from a perception that clothing is disposable. Third, radically improve materials used in clothing manufacture. Fourth, move to renewable energy and renewable feedstocks such as biopolymer yarns, replacing petroleum-based synthetics altogether. H&M, while a major culprit in our fast fashion industry, they're really a pioneer if you want to think about it that way. They are now committed to becoming carbon positive with their supply chain by 2040. They also have a closer term target of converting their business to use only recycled yarns and sustainably produced materials by 2030. See, even behemoth companies can change their ways. And the impact that will have will be far greater than simple changes we make in our personal lives. This is encouraging. And we can do better. We can buy local. We can commit to using and buying non-synthetic clothing. We can even buy used. In a few episodes, I've talked about used clothing, including an exploratory conversation about moving businesses to embrace green strategies with Anka Novakovic in episode 33. I will also link to that episode with show notes. Moving on to plastics. And I want to personally thank Paul for making me chuckle a bit with the statistics he shares. Some of the comparisons are almost comical, while seriously unfunny. Okay, here goes. 407 million tons of plastics are produced each year. 
30% more than... <laughs> I'm sorry, 30% more than the weight of all humanity. Now, for, for me, this just tickles my funny bone because I'm picturing all of these people like smooshed together the same way I might see an iceberg of plastics. Um, I've seen in, in another image where they actually pictured a water bottle emerging from the surface with this giant mass of plastics underneath. As with an iceberg, when you look at it, you're seeing only 10% of its weight from the surface, right? So I just had this same kind of vision in my mind, and um, it was just a little bit too much. It's my imagination coming through. And I think that this is an important note too. Imagination is what it will take to solve a lot of the problems that we've talked about in this podcast series. So with that, I'll move on to the next statistic. In 2019, American companies exported over a billion pounds of plastic waste to over 95 countries in an attempt to get rid of it. And really what that means is that they sent their garbage or we sent our garbage to other countries with the hope that it could somehow be reused. A million plastic bottles are purchased every minute. I don't even think I can fathom what that would look like. It's just such a vast number it seems ridiculous. And since we've just finished talking about fashion, we need to also consider recycling of plastic bottles into clothing. My graduation gown from Santa Clara University this June boasted the claim, I used to be a soda bottle. But the impact of that kind of recycling can actually be terrible. As Paul notes, quote, Clothing fiber made from recycled single-use plastic bottles has become a popular alternative to polyester, a petroleum-based fabric. But all polyester clothes shed microplastics when they are washed, which end up in the ocean, where they do more harm than if they had remained a bottle. And that was from page 236. So what do we do with all the plastic? Fortunately, there are some solutions presently being explored from a technological perspective that can upcycle plastic effectively. This is done by returning plastic to its virgin state by heating it without exposing it to any oxygen at all so you don't have the pollutant impact. And another is literally to break it down into its original components at a molecular level and rebuild it from there. Another solution is to make clean and pure drinking water widely available so people don't resort to disposable water solutions in the first place. Paris, France is leading the charge yet again, as they recently took back water rights from private companies Suez and Veola. They installed better filtration systems and thousands of free water bottle refill stations all around Paris, even offering still and sparkling solutions. By going from private back to public, they improved drinking water quality, and they lowered costs to consumers. This is incredible. Paris is committed to becoming the first city to be completely plastic waste-free, and they are well on their way. Obviously, it's been too long since I've been there because I did not even know about this until I read that section. We can also employ a similar strategy to what is done in Germany, where a hefty deposit is required on every piece of plastic sold. When you return the packaging to any grocery store in a reverse vending machine, you receive your deposit back as a voucher that can be redeemed for cash. In Norway, a similar method is employed. 
For reference, in Norway, 97% of the plastic is recycled, whereas only 30% is recycled in the United States. It's time for us to follow Germany's lead. As Paul winds down the content portion of this book, he reminds us that poverty is an industry. Industries of all sorts extract value from poor people and redistribute that wealth. It's undeniable. It's reality. There is some disagreement about what extreme poverty really looks like. From the World Bank's perspective, having $1.90 a day is a threshold by which they measure extreme poverty. Impoverished people living in destitute conditions are reduced to a number on a chart. And here Paul goes again with the comparisons, making me chuckle about how ridiculous the situation really is. He shares, quote, one month on this low level of income would mean that a month's wages would be enough to buy one Lululemon bra, the hood ornament on a Mercedes, or two bags of Purina dog chow with real chicken, end quote. <laughs> I, I can't even read it without laughing. And two bags of dog food with real chicken. <laughs> <clears throat> Okay, (sighs) poverty is not a laughing matter. And while the quality of life in many communities around the globe have improved in recent years, we still have a long way to come. Challenges of racism, classism, persecution, and conviction spirit more problems into our everyday. Prison funding alone is an $80 billion industry in the United States. That's just the lending and funding portion. 2.3 million people are in prison, and another 4.4 million are on probation or parole. We keep them down, and we keep them poor. The privatization of our prison system, turning it into a profitable industry, is, in my opinion, itself criminal. We need to reverse centuries of prejudice to rid ourselves of the poverty industry. Our biases propagate its existence. When we look at impoverished people as other, as different, it's not long before we start to think of them as not as smart or not as able or not as deserving. These are fallacies. When any of us think like this, we're flat wrong. Wow. Okay. I obviously have some passion points around this topic. Um, It's a tough one. We see people homeless on the streets, not able to support themselves with a roof over their head, and we make assumptions about how they ended up there. Many of us do. People I respect, people I care about, have told me it's the drugs or it's the alcohol, but it's so much more than that. We've created a system of poverty, and we do so as kind of a byproduct of the capitalism that we have as our mainstay. So what can we do differently? How can we improve our thinking? How can we create a more fair system? Solutions to our problem of poverty may come from unlikely places, including the world of carbon onsets and carbon offsets. If you've flown on a plane or even made a purchase at certain e-commerce stores, you are likely aware of carbon offsets. These are fees you pay to a carbon offset fund that is meant to offset the carbon created from your purchase or your flight or your stay at a hotel. It's a commitment to absorb the carbon that you've created at some point in the future. But is it real? 
does it really work that way? As Paul points out, carbon credits have become quite lucrative for sellers and brokers, which creates a financial incentive that may override the spirit of the product that they're selling. The promised offset isn't always delivered. A forest fire might burn that forest that they had planned to sequester the carbon. The natural world can be that way. It's not always predictable. Offsets are not guaranteed. Their impact may be too far down the road to create the future that we want. So as we close the book and get ready for our activistic journey, Paul asks us to think about carbon onsets. Quote, instead of paying off a promissory note for your carbon debt, an onset pays your debt forward and makes a payment to another person or community possibly disadvantaged for a subsequent good carbon deed. Instead of simply neutralizing the emissions from the 20,000 miles you put on your car for $100 and pay forward the money to a verified project that draws down extra greenhouse gas emissions while restoring degraded land and improving the well-being of humans and nature. While it may take a while to see the benefits accrue, the course of action is proactive, not merely neutralizing. End quote. So in summary, I'd like to just share a couple of closing thoughts. Next week will be our last installment in the series. The book has been a journey. It's an invitation to act. So in next week's final presentation of this series, we'll be talking about activism and the things you can do. And I'll be sharing with you the punch list that I've created from this work in his book. I encourage you to do the same. And it's a great time to visit regeneration.org and take a look at the tools there once again. This has been our 10th installment in our coverage of regeneration, ending the climate crisis in one generation by Paul Hawken. And by now, I think you know what to do. As we wrap up, I have three simple asks. The TLDL version for too long didn't listen is this. Share the episode on social spaces. You can do it from wherever you listen or my website. Leave us a written five-star review on your favorite platform. And lastly, if you can become a Patreon member to support our efforts, I would love it. Okay, one final ask. I guess that makes four. I hope you'll also send me a note with questions for Paul or thoughts on what we can all do to support this regeneration movement. The subject is such an important topic, and we're all in this together. It's a crazy race through space and time, and it will take our collective effort to push the concepts of regeneration into action. Visit caremorebebetter.com for all the ways you can make a difference and support the show. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and be better. We can regenerate Earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.